So we are talking, as you can see, about ethics and worldviews. And you can see that quote up there by uh, Albert Camus. He was a philosopher in the mid-1900s. I think he's passed away by now. But it says, a man without ethics is a wild beast loosed upon the world. Um, and so that kind of sets the stage for what we're doing. Uh, a little intermission here. Next week, I said uh, they changed our room again. We were going to be in W125. Next week, we'll be in W151 for next week only. And some of that's just because of the ice storm and things got canceled. So they're moving women's ministry into here. They're moving us into W151. So don't come here. If you're a woman, you can come here and you can get away with it, guys. We're not, yeah, we're not, we're not doing that gender stuff, okay? So it's just you, you go where you're biologically need to go, and that's going to be down to 151 W. Um, so anyway, so only for next week we'll do that. And so we start this whole thing out, ethics of studying right and wrong. And the interesting, man, just in getting ready for this class, I was, uh, I was watching a, 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 just a video series by Chuck Colson and a group of other people, and they were, it's called Doing What's Right. Uh, man, it was a great series to go through and to listen to kind of prep for this class. And so it's at Princeton University, and most of the audience is MBA students there at Princeton. And it, but it was done in 2011. And kind of the, the impetus for this was the banking collapse in 2008-2009. And so that was kind of the first 45 minutes that they were talking about that. And it was just interesting, you know, because at least in my mind, it was like, wow, you know what? It was just corrupt banking practices that led to all of this. But as you're walking through this with some of these economists and stuff, they're, they're talking about and they're saying, oh, no, no, man, this was an ethical earthquake on every level possible, whether it was the government with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? Man, they were not following the guidelines that they had established, and they were just, man, just passing along these loans and encouraging them. And, of course, with the banking industry, right, they were taking these bad loans, and they would bundle them up, and they were selling them as an investment. And you can only do so much of that before the whole system just collapses upon itself. But even at the point with the home buyers. Right? You've, you've got this unethical aspect of, I'm buying a home that I know I can't afford. I'm buying a home that you, I know I can't afford this home. And so, man, you get one blip in the economy that affects your job, your income, your spouse's job and income, and you're going to lose that home. And literally, this was this perfect storm of unethical decisions that came together at every level possible that brought that collapse upon the society and the culture. And so the whole thing, that, that was the premise that started this thing out in the course, and they went deeper into ethics and went into So some of that stuff I've worked into this idea of what we're doing tonight. But again, it's, you know, one ethical decision, un, I'm sorry, one unethical decision will lead to another and another, and another. And when, when that permeates your culture and your society, man, it does not bode well for anybody. You know, and that becomes just the importance of ethics. And so we see that ethics, it's the study of right and wrong. It's the way things ought to be, right? It's not necessarily the way things are, but it's the way things ought to be. And they, they brought up this one word. They were A student was asking... Um, I don't remember who on the panel, but this was an MBA student 
And he's asking, well, well, well what's the, what should we teach if we were to have one class on ethics? What, what should be in that class? Well, it wasn't even that at this point in time, because keep in mind, you're talking about grad students. And the, one of the people on the panel said, if we're talking about teaching ethics in one class at a grad level, don't waste your time. Because ethics is about a lifetime of building principles into your life. And the guy used this word, virtue. And the moderator, after he was done talking with the student, the moderator says, you know, can I just interrupt? He said, why did you use the word virtue? And it struck me because I don't know how many times I hear the word virtue anymore. I don't hear it much, and, and maybe, maybe you do in your circles or not, but it's just interesting. So I looked it up, and I thought, okay, so what is virtue? Virtue is moral excellence, goodness, righteousness. It's not just right and wrong, but it's a lifetime pursuit of moral excellence. And I thought virtue is the right word. Virtue. And that's why one class on ethics at the grad level is not going to get you to living an ethical life. What has been built into you from childhood up is what's going to determine that, whether there's any ground to work in at all. But virtue is what we should be pursuing. Virtue. So there's two two key questions, right? When we talk about ethics, we want to seek to answer two questions. First is, what does it mean to live a good life? And then how should we live? And those are the two questions that it seeks to answer, right? Ethics presents a way to think about and confront life's most difficult questions about belief and behavior. And I kind of ventured a little bit into last week when we were talking about just the the, eth- or the, uh, the advancement of technology, right? And we talked about the chat GPT, which is just interesting, right? Elon Musk was saying we probably need to put a hiatus on AI advancement and for like six months until we can kind of figure out what's the best. Of course, they're not going to figure out what's the best thing to do with this in six months, but at least he recognizes that, man, our technology has, out- has, has outstripped our ability for our ethics to deal with it properly, Right? Because ethically speaking, when we look at technology, it's, okay, if we can do it, we should. Instead of saying, man, if we can do it, doesn't mean that we have to do it. And that involves just all kinds of stuff within the technological realm. Man, we do not even have the ethical foundation or structure to deal with these advanced technologies that have come along. Our virtue has not kept up with the advancement of technology. And that's the struggle that we have today. Um, so foundations for Christian ethics. Right, so the first thing is a biblical worldview looks to God's character as the foundation of human ethics. It's God's character. The reality is, is we're all theologians. Every one of us are theologians. The question is, is whether we're going to be good or bad theologians. Right? I talk with students and about discipleship. Right? When we go through the scriptures, we don't see two categories of followers. We don't see the Christians, and we see the disciples. 
Scripture doesn't talk about those two categories. It talks about one. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple. Plain and simple. The question is, is are you an obedient disciple or a disobedient disciple? Are you a good disciple or are you not a good disciple? We're called to be disciples. We're called to be theologians. We need to do that well. We need to do that well. So only in God's character do we find an unchanging, just, ever-loving foundation for determining what is right and wrong. Only in God's character, right? And again, I, personally, this is the reason why I think every follower of Christ needs to spend time studying the attributes of God. It's called theology proper within the seminary realm, and it is a study where we go through or you go through and you study God's attributes. Right, man, when I was in seminary, this was the first systematic class I went through. It blew my mind. I'm just like, how can you even know stuff like this about God? Well, we can only know about God what God reveals, and he's revealed plenty to us about his nature, about his essence, about his character. We need to make a study of that. There's tons of good books out there. Um, if you've never done it, I would encourage you to do that. So a consistent ethical system, I'm sorry, consistent ethical systems amongst differing cultures is seen as evidence of a universal law or natural law, right? That's given by a universal lawgiver or the moral lawgiver, right? Everyone bears the image of God, thus the moral law exists in every person. It's do we recognize that? Do we fall under that authority? If we don't, we're working against God's purpose and design. Now we don't, none of us do it perfectly, but even, do we even desire that? Do we even desire that in our lives? Romans 2.15 says, They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And again, that's that part of, man, God has given us a conscience. Now, obviously, when we get into the secular world, that doesn't even exist. And in postmodernism and Marxism, that's an idea that doesn't even exist, right? If you get in the New Age, consciousness is all that exists. But because we're image bearers of God, He has placed that in us to know Him and to obey Him, to worship Him and to make His name known. Is are we just walking in obedience to that or not? Right? The only person, the only in the person of Jesus Christ do we see the perfect ethical standard lived out and made available to us. Only in Christ. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. We want to know what the Father's like, we just need to look to Jesus. That's it. We need to look to Christ. Uh, morality and ethics. Questions so far? All right. Morality. I'm sorry? Uh, oh, people are not afraid of debt? Oh, I don't think so in our country. I mean, that's just how everybody does, how, how we do life now. I mean, I think what the average, I, I don't even know what it is, so I didn't, you know, everybody, that's not right. The majority of the people in America carry debt, and it's just a normal, natural thing to do. And I'm not even talking about a mortgage. Mortgage is debt, but um, I think most of the time is, and we'll see this idea come up, it's somebody's going to bail me out. 
Somebody will bail me out. I don't know that that's necessarily true, but I certainly think that that's prevalent within our culture. So, morality or ethics. Morality is a personal system of determining right and wrong based on some standard of what we think is good. Right? Some people's morality consists of do anything you want as long as it causes no harm to others. And I don't know if you, could, if you were here when we were watching the videos about the six foot five Asian woman who's really a five foot nine white guy. Right? And he's questioning, hey, you know, if it, as long as it doesn't cause harm to somebody else, why not? And that's literally, you know, kind of the, one of the mantras of today. As long as it causes no harm to everybody else, go ahead and do it. But the reality of it is, is there's nothing that you do that doesn't affect somebody else. Right? Even breathing has some kind of effect on the people around you. So there's nothing that we do. Ethics is a study of morality. It examines moral conduct, values, duties, and goodness of people. Study of ethics can be divided into two theories. The first is the teleological ethics. Right? It says a judge, it judges your actions as right or wrong by their ends or purposes. Right? And so we go through. Where, did your actions lead to something good? Then that's a good action. That's a good ethic. If it led to something bad, then it becomes a bad action. So questions, it, teleological ethics ask questions. What is the good life? Again, we talked about this or we mentioned it. Is what is the purpose or the end of the good life? And how might the good life be secured for as many people as possible? Or think about it like this. To know if something is right or wrong, we need to first ask, what is it for? What is it for? That's the first question we need to ask. So I brought a hammer, right? And so if I want to know how to use this, I need to ask the question, what is a hammer for? Right? And it's driving nails or if you use this end, it's pulling nails out of the boards. I mean, that's the purpose of this hammer. That's what it's been designed for. So I can use it for a good purpose of building a house, building a shed, building whatever. That's the purpose for the hammer. But I could also use the hammer for bashing in somebody's head and killing them. Now, that's not the purpose that this was made for. But it could be used for that, right? And so that's that idea that teleological ethics is how is it used and what's the result ultimately, right? And so how does that play out in something else? And I was just thinking, you know, so we look at what is it for? Marriage. What is marriage for? Before we can define what marriage is, we need to ask what is it for, if we can, before we need to sit there and explain, okay, this is what marriage should look like, what is it for? Right? And so when we look at God's purpose and design for marriage, we get a clear vision about what marriage is for. Right? One man, one woman. Right? They come together. It's for the purpose of procreation. It's for the purpose of 
stewarding the earth. It's a purpose of creating or fulfilling the cultural mandate. Man, even within that marriage and the family unit, we see a picture of the Trinity. And so there's a lot that's wrapped up in this idea of what is marriage for. But when we begin to call marriage something other than what God calls it, we move away from His purpose and design. Nothing good is going to come from that. We just call it something different. The world calls it something different. And again, this is this teleological ethics that we, that we look at. Uh, stealing would be another thing that's to be under a teleological ethic. I can come and be stealing food for my children. Right? That's going to bear less consequence on me than if I'm stealing your car to go rob a bank. What's the end result? What's the end result? That determines whether the action is good or bad. And that would be the teleological ethics. Ethical systems that are found under the teleological category, hedonism, Right? Human beings should maximize their own personal pleasure. Um, if, you, if you just wanted to see just a modern-day hedonism, hey, hey, who's heard of Burning Man? We got one. We got, we got a couple. Uh, I would encourage you to cautiously, if you're really interested, to go and just YouTube that and look up Burning Man. I was just spent some time just refreshing myself, Burning Man 2022. They have it every year. Anyway, if you want a picture of modern-day hedonism, go look at that. Burning Man 2022, and you can go back and look at past years, but I mean, that is just, I'll, I'll just stop. It's hedonism. They, they, if, you, if you want to see what it looks like, go look there. Uh, you have utilitarianism, which is an ethical, it is, it is, I'm sorry, it is ethical to pursue the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Okay? And then there's ethical egoism. The good life is being free to look after one's own interest. Okay. You have moral skepticism. That's objective moral knowledge is either inaccessible or impossible. Okay. So let's do this. Take a few minutes at your table, okay, and what are the problems that you could find in each one of those systems or that you would imagine that would come out of each one of those systems? Okay, so what are the problems that would come out of hedonism, utilitarianism, ethical egoism, or moral skepticism? Take a few minutes, discuss that amongst you, and to try to figure out what problems would come out of each one of those. Okay? Go. All right, let's bring it back together. Um, so what'd you come up with? What problems with hedonism? Everybody's like, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> What's that? Just self-love. Yeah, okay, self-love. I don't think that's, I don't find that, I don't find that very pleasurable, to be honest with you. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm just going to stand over here right now. Somebody just, anyway, yeah, sacrifice. Yeah, ultimately, it's, it's an inward type of, it's something that this turns inward. It's all about you, and it's all about you. Uh, how about utilitarianism? Problems with that? It's all about you again, because you're determining what the greatest good is for the greatest number of people. Well, I think, actually, you got to go back to who determines 
what is the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Because you could, you could do that for yourself, which means it's only for you. That doesn't accomplish the greatest number of people. I think the big question there that we need to ask is, is who gets to determine that? And we'll come back and visit that again. How about um, ethical egoism? Just look after your own interest. Yep, own interest. Yeah, there's your key. And then moral skepticism. Objective moral knowledge is either inaccessible or it's impossible. Well, yeah, except for that one. That's right. There's your moral claim right there is that you can't know it. But uh, yeah, and again, so then, you know, you're left up to the individual or you're left up to those that are in power that ultimately will make those decisions for you. Um, so anyway, it's good to talk about those things. It's good to discuss them. So problems with the theolo uh, teleological uh, theories. One, it struggles to explain why many people act against their own self-interest. I mean, why would somebody rush into a burning building and save somebody that they don't know? Or why would you jump into the ocean and save somebody that you don't know because you're putting your own life at risk? I mean, ultimately, that works against these teleological ethics. Uh, another one, it requires us to act according to outcomes, right? And it's often difficult, if not impossible, to predict the consequences of one's action. You know, again, an example would be China's one-child policy, right? They started this in the 70s, I think, is when that was. And now, right, you can only have one child. And so, man, forced birth control, whether that's pills or abortion. And now they got this huge problem of we got all these guys running around and there's no ladies to marry. Right? They clearly did not think out the ramifications of that law. And now it's a population, not just in China, that's growing older and older and older. And we see this certainly in Japan and Taiwan and these other nations where, I mean, because the male is the desired gender that you would have amongst your children. And so uh, you've got millions and millions of men looking for a lady to marry. And I was, just, I was just listening to, I think it was this morning, and it was this idea, especially like in China, if you live in a rural area, right? I mean, now the ladies have clout, and they're like, you know what, I don't really want to marry a farmer. I want to marry somebody in the urban environment so I can have all of this, the benefit of that. And so it's like, man, little guy like me don't even have a high school education, and I'm out farming. I got nothing to offer. And so and all of this is from the one-child policy. And, of course, now we see it that, you know, that rearing its head elsewhere, and a lot of that's just through the expressive individualism. It's just like, you know what, I don't really need marriage. I'm good. I'm happy. I've got my, my, my video games or whatever the case is. And so, you know, we work through all of these things, and they become consequences that we don't think about when we begin to embark on those ideas. And so, because we often don't know what are going to be the consequences of our actions. Or maybe we just don't think about it. Um, it can be used to justify doing evil in order to bring about a good outcome. The teleological. So now you have deontological ethics. That's the next one. I practiced that one a little bit trying to say that. Deontological ethics. Okay. It says we should do what is right because it's the right thing to do. It's our duty to do what is right. We do it because it's the right thing to do. 
right and wrong exists independent of our situations or circumstances. Truth is absolute. I'm like, okay, we're good. Right? Lying is always wrong. That would be an example within the deontological ethics. So it asks the questions, how might we understand right and wrong and then do what is right? That's a question that's asked under deontological ethics. All right, so it's a system of ethics, or under this is, is transcendental idealism. It's our duty is to figure out what is good without qualification, and then we pursue it. That's called transcendental idealism. You have rationalism, which says, since we are thinking beings, we must use our reasoning ability to live a morally good life. Problems with this. It does not allow for exceptions. Right and wrong is always black and white. There is no gray. Right? So examples of that would be, you know, lying to protect the Jews from the Nazis or Christians from ISIS. Is it wrong? Is it always wrong? Or when you had in uh, Exodus chapter 1, where you had the Hebrew midwives, right? And Pharaoh said, you know, kill those Hebrew babies, right? And they refused to kill them, even though it was the law of the land, right or wrong, right? And deontological ethics doesn't allow for those gray areas. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you could probably make the case for it. I just don't know that it always applies that way because even within, when you look at the cowboy way, I mean, there's always, there's always a softness. There's always an exception to some of these things and deontological. There's never an exception. There's, there's never exception. Um, so, and again, you could, I think you could probably make the case. I just don't know how strong that that would be. And maybe I just can't figure it out. And, and that's the reason why, um, uh, or disobeying laws that conflict with biblical truths, right? And this is kind of where we begin to bring this home. Segregation, you got Christian bakers and florists, right, we see in America, or in Britain, right? Christians are being arrested for praying silently in front of an abortion clinic. You're not allowed to pray in front of an abortion clinic in, in Britain, right? I mean, this is, and you're thinking that's not real. It's real. It's real. Lady, she was the head of the a pro-life organization there. She was just standing across the street. It was just her. Somebody from the abortion clinic calls the police. I think she's praying. The police show up, and they ask her, are you praying? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I was. What were you praying about? Well, I was praying God would close that abortion clinic, and they arrested her. They arrested her. And so, you deontological ethics, you're not allowed to do that. The law says so. I'm sorry? No, no, it was a silent prayer. Yeah, I mean, she could have sat there and said, no, I wasn't praying, or I was praying. You know, she just, she just spoke the truth. She was arrested. 
And, and again, we don't, we don't need to look to Great Britain. I think I've said this before to see what's coming. We just need to look to Canada now to see what's coming. You know, and again, I used to always say, you know, we're probably 30, 20, 30 years behind Great Britain. And now we're probably only five to 10 years behind Canada. Yeah, it is. But, you know, once you get to the point. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, So for Christians, we have a higher law or a higher authority to guide us through these gray areas. That's why we, we must be grounded in God's word. Right, and we certainly see this with Paul, not Paul, but Peter. And they said, just don't be going and preaching in the name of Jesus anymore. And then they roughed him up, and they're like, look, man, we're going to obey God's law over man's. You decide, but we're obeying God's law. Right? There's that higher authority that we have that guides us. We just have to know the authority, and we have to walk with the authority. And we have to obey the authority. We see Colossians 3, 1 through 6. It says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. We answer to a higher authority. Oh, ethics and secularism. Right? Ethics or determining what is right and wrong, is founded in humanity. This is what the worldview of secularism said. Man, what is right, what is wrong, we look to ourselves to determine what that is. It has to be this way because there is no God. Or at least I really believe that. Right? Man's the center of all ideas and decisions in secular humanism. Right? We make our own rules. And the ethics are determined by life circumstances or cultural practices, which leads to either one. Which, you, which leads to either moral relativism or utilitarianism. If man is that ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is wrong, you're either going to have moral relativism where morality is relative to or defined by the individual or the culture, Okay, utilitarianism, we've already decided on this, or this, not decided, but read this, and that is um, whatever brings about the greatest good for the greatest number of people, and that's utilitarianism. And those are your only two avenues that you're going to have as far as morality within secular humanism. There's no other option for them. Again, the key question to ask for utilitarianism is who gets to decide what's the greatest good? For the greatest number of people. Well, that's the second question, right? That's the second question is, is what do you do with those people who are not the greatest number of people? What do you do with those people? Well, that's certainly what it could get to. The option is, is you either force them into the right thinking, which is kind of the idea where we're at today. You know, we have to affirm the LGBTQ. It's no longer good enough to tolerate it. 
It's no longer enough to accept it. You have to affirm it. You have to celebrate it, right? And right now, the worst that you get is you get canceled. You may lose your job, depending on where you're at, right? There's options. Haven't heard anybody being killed yet, right? Not yet, but what's that? Yeah, but that's, that's not by the government authority to determine what's the greatest good for the greatest number of people, though. Yeah, so that would, that would I hear what you're saying, this is not part of this, uh, because that's what you're looking for is who decides the greatest good for the greatest number of people, and what do you do with those that don't fit into that? Right. Something, has, something has to be done with them. Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, that would yeah that would be an example of that. Yes, yeah, that would be an example. That's a good one, where everybody has to get the vaccine because that's the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Yep. 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 That was that's an excellent one. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Oh, so where does morality come from for secularists? It's really through the evolutionary process. All right, mothers with the genetic impulse to protect their offspring have been more likely to have their offspring survive, right? Which that's the whole point of evolutionary theory is survival. And so the mothers that take care of their children, the children are more likely to survive. And so you get this through a long process of evolution as you get morality. Um, some secularists not only see a supernatural explanation for morality as wrong, but they, but they believe to think like that is inherently dangerous. To think those thoughts is dangerous. Paul Kurtz, he says, it's a traditional supernaturalistic moral commandments are especially repressive of our human needs. They are immoral insofar as they foster illusions about human destiny, which is the afterlife, and the suppression of vital inclinations. And often what's vital inclinations is, it's about the sexual mores of the culture. It almost always gets to that point that you are passing along things that are infringing upon my sexual mor mores or my sexual values or my sexual desires. Right? Paul Kurtz, he's considered the father of secular humanism, certainly in America. Okay, so it's a nice little tie in there with him. And then you have situational ethics. It's the belief that uh, morality of an action is determined by the unique situation of that action. Right, right and wrong are based on the situations in which moral agents have to decide for the most beneficial course open to choice. Joseph Fletcher. Situational ethics becomes a license for doing whatever each person thinks is best in any given situation. So you can have the same action in two different situations, and in one situation it's a good action and in the other one the same action becomes a bad action situational ethics it depends on the situation before we can answer that question yeah yeah uh-huh yeah yeah yeah, it's, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, and that, you know, you, you, you get into, again, it's a lot of things because, man, there's a lot of things that are at play, and, and a lie is a lie. 
but you have to come around and, and bring, you, you have to prove it that it's a lie. And then you have to, because, and some people even believe a lie, right? You know, I, I would say the maxim for postmodernism is, is a lie is as good as the truth as long as it furthers my agenda, right? Lies are acceptable today if it does what I want it to do. And so, you know, then you get into conspiracy theories, and again, you know, there's conspiracy theories, and then there's things that people call conspiracy theories just to, to poo-poo those things away, right? And they do come out to be true. And so we, just, we use it as a name to hush things up, or it really is a, such a situation. And you can have both sides of it. We live in a culture where who do you trust? I mean, that's literally where we're That's the danger point of our culture today is, who do you trust? Because, you, right, you can't trust government. You can't trust academia. Right? You can't trust the police. You can't trust the healthcare system. You can't trust the insurance system. I mean, who is it that you trust, right? And that's the damaging thing. And again, I'm not saying that you should or you shouldn't, right? You earn trust. But who do you? So you, normally what happens is, is we end up trusting people that think like we do or they think like I do, right? That kind of meets, meets that emotional thing that goes on there. And whether it's true or not becomes irrelevant. It's, you know, I watch my news from here because they say what I want them to hear or they think like I think or I watch it from here because they do the same thing. And that's because that fits with my ideology. And so we don't consider anything else. So it just becomes a challenge of how do you know? And that's where we're at today. Uh, as a Christian, you know what? I may or may not trust you, but I do trust God's word. And if you're following God's word, then I can trust that also in you. And you can trust that in me. Now, that doesn't mean that I'll never let you down. I'm a human being. I'm a sinful human being, and I make mistakes. Uh, but there is that path of trust. There's that path of forgiveness. There's that path of redemption that we only find in Christianity, in that biblical worldview. Um, Seculars steal from God whenever they accept concepts of good that come from the scriptures, right? And you got don't murder, right? Most people, we, we get that. It's wrong to murder people, regardless of your worldview, Right? Don't lie, don't steal, love your neighbor, help the poor and sick. I mean, these are all biblical concepts. Right? Frank Turk has got a good book out, and that's called Stealing from God. And he just shows where all of these other worldviews, when they're, when they're putting forth an ethical standard, a standard of morality that's universal or almost universal, it comes from a scriptural context. We just don't give God the we don't cite him as the source. We don't give God the credit. Um, so now, ethics and Marxism. So we did secularism. This is Marxism, right? Their ethics are driven by the proletariat morality. It says that society is constantly moving upward toward the elimination of all social and economic classes. Society is evolving towards communism. Anything that helps the upward evolution toward communism is good, and whatever hinders it, like religion or capitalism, that's morally evil. So again, the whole structure will define what that is, um, but as long as it's moving you towards communism, it's a, it's a good thing. 
And so we talked about, man, there's over, you know, 100 million people were killed in the 20th century alone under communist regimes. Well, that's a good thing for communism because we were just eliminating people that were barriers to our worldview, our ideology. So we just remove you. Um, Yeah, never mind. I'll I'll go on on that. It's uh, the ends justify the means under Marxism. The ends justifies the means. Right? Hatred is abhorred in most ethical systems. But in Marxism, it's seen as a good thing if it advances the cause of Marxism. Hatred fuels the revolution between the proletariat or the working class and the bourgeoisie, the property owners. Hatred fuels the revolution between communism and capitalism. For communism to work, at least under Marxism, it's that idea you have to have that rebellion that's taking place, right? Where you got the you got the thesis and the antithesis come together and you have this collision and then you end up with a new synthesis, right? And all of that is moved, moving upwards within Marxism that you're evolving to this utopian society of communism. You have to have the rebellion to get that. Now, ethics and postmodernism. Uh, cultural relativism is the vehicle for moral morality and postmodernism. Cultural relativism. It's the belief that truth and morals are relative to one's culture. Again, we talked about this already. Uh, Whatever is useful within one's culture or society is morally right. It's a pragmatic effect. Not all postmodernists agree with this idea of morality from pragmatism. This guy, Adam Phillips, says no adult can know what's best for another adult. And by the same token, no group or society can know what's best for another group or society. And I think we've talked about this before. And again, if if each table becomes a culture, and we just define each one of you as as a separate culture and even a different culture. And so you can turn around and under moral cultural relativism, you know, you can have your own cultural mores here at each table. And they can conflict with one another from the other tables. Right? And it works for a certain length of time as long as your cultures don't overlap. But how do you, how do you resolve the conflict that happens between two different cultures? Where one says it's, it's okay to bind baby's feet. Right? How do you deal with those cultures when they begin to conflict with one another? And again, we see that you know being played out uh, in America, where you know honor killings within the within the Muslim culture, right? I mean, that's perfectly acceptable in Islamic countries. If you bring shame, it's a shame honor type of a perspective. And so, if you bring shame upon the family, right, it's okay to discipline even unto the point of an honor killing. You come to America, well, that's not. That's not acceptable. But in their culture, it is. How do we resolve that? If we're going to honor the culture, how do you deal with that? Or do we say, well, now you're in our culture, you need to conform to our culture? Which is really, which would be a, just a, an abhorrent idea under postmodernism to sit there and say, oh, you're going to force somebody else into your culture. That would be a wicked idea in postmodernism. 
But when the cultures begin to collide, postmodernism begins to crumble. When the cultures begin to collide, postmodernism begins to crumble. So Islam, right? Morality in Islam is dictated by the divine command theory. What that theory states is that right and wrong are determined by God or Allah's commands. So how is that different from Christianity? How is that different from Christianity? Under the divine command theory, you end up with this. It's called Euthyro's Dilemma. It was put out there by Plato, right? And he said, does God command the good because it is good? Or is it good because God commanded it? It was commanded by God to be good. And so those are the two horns of the dilemma that Plato puts out there in Euthyro's Dilemma. Right? And what happens, this is where, and, and neither one's good for God. Neither one of these is good for God. Under the first horn, right, God's decision to call something good is based on something that is already morally good. It's a good that exists outside of God's being, and he's decided, yep, that's good. So you don't need God to make that good. Right? That's the first horn of the dilemma. So the moral, or moral goodness is something that exists before God issues any command. Whether he says it's good or not, it's good. Moral goodness exists independent of God. The second horn of the dilemma, it says nothing is good until God commands it. So God could call something good or evil. We just need to wait and see what he determines. We just need to wait and see what he says. This makes God's commands morally arbitrary. Euthyro's dilemma makes the divine command theory false. Right? And that's what Islam works under, is divine command theory. The, the dilemma negates it. So, ethics and Christianity. Again, morality proceeds from God's character. This solves Euthyro's dilemma. It's not good because God said it's good. It's not good because God made it good. It's good because it aligns with God's character. And now we're back to that idea of theology proper or studying God's attributes. We need to know God's nature. We need to know God's essence beyond more than love is love. We need to know more than that. Um, so we need to study his attributes. Something is not good because God says it's good. Or because God made it, it's because it reflects his character. Does it reflect God's character? If so, it's good. If it doesn't reflect God's character, it's not good. The basic of Christian ethics is found in the great commandment. You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man, love should drive our morality. And then moral relativism. Back to this, right? Secularism, postmodernism, Marxism, and even new spirituality promote moral relativism. They promote it. Francis Schaeffer said, if there is no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions. What does that look like today? Man, under moral relativism, we have no right to say P 
Putin's actions in Ukraine are wrong. We have no right to say that. We can share an opinion. I don't think he should do that. I don't think he should, you know, do the stuff he's doing. That's just my opinion. And my opinion is no more valuable than Ryan's or somebody else's or Joseph's or Leela's. It's just your opinion under moral relativism. You can't say that somebody is right or wrong. Our culture is crumbling under the weight of moral relativism. You cannot live life like that. You cannot live life like that. If the law of the land is moral relativism, then the most powerful will always win regardless of their rightness. Who has the power? They win. They win. And they will win until, they, until somebody else gains the power. That's what moral relativism gives us. We have no other standard than power. Survival of the fittest. Everything Hitler did in Germany was legal according to the law of the land. He did nothing illegal according to German law. Nothing. It was all legal. He made sure of it. Only in the Christian system of ethics can we adequately answer the ethical issues that have existed, do exist, or ever will exist. Because it's an unchanging standard that's found in God's character. If there's no personal responsibility, then there will be a high degree of unethical acts. Personal responsibility must be found somewhere within the ethical system. But if the wrongs that I commit are because of systemic injustices, then I'm not accountable for that. And again, you, you had this young lady uh, in Nashville, right? She goes and kills three students, three adults. And again, not everybody, right? But you, you hear some of these things out of the LGBTQ community, and it's like, well, you know what? You pass these laws hindering gender health care, and drag queen hate breeds hate. And that was a statement. You saw some of this on Twitter, uh, on um, Instagram, through some uh, reported in some newspapers and stuff. And you're like, man, there's like zero responsibility on this person. They would agree what was done was wrong. It was evil. It was bad. But it's not on the part of the individual. It's on part of the system that forced the individual into that. Moral relativism. Yeah. Say, say that again, Doug. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the moral. F- yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that is bound up in all of these. Not, that's not correct. Let me, let me, that's incorrect. It's not bound up in all of these worldviews directly, but you do see that idea that, man, we've got to destroy the foundations, right? In order to bring in something else. And, you know, and the idea is, it's like, man, when you desire safety over freedom, right, you'll accept anything that's going to give me that safety, the problem is, is when you give up your freedom for safety, you will eventually lose both. You'll eventually lose both. And so, but the structure is, it's, it's there. It's, it's a design. It's a purpose. It's not by happenstance that we see these things taking place. It's a calculated, it's well thought out. It's not something that we think, oh, well, next week, this is years and years and years and years in the making. And it does, obviously, within the spiritual realm, it's been within, you know, well, since the beginning, well, at least chapter three, <laughs> Genesis. Um, so if you're not immersing yourself in God's word, then you will struggle to cultivate a biblical worldview. And we and where we always win, if you're not actively cultivating a biblical worldview, then you're passively absorbing a false one. Um, it takes work. It takes work. Kept. Uh huh. Yeah. historical fact or a math fact and say, okay, is this an objective truth? Is this true apart from the subject that it always proves? Or is this depending on your personal beliefs or preferences? And those were pretty easy. And then we presented something that had to do with a moral view. And I won't tell you what the topic was, but it just said, you know, this blank is wrong. And I said, is this a, it's kind of been a different analogy. Is this, is this a objective truth or Overwhelmingly, almost the entire room said that's a subjective truth. Yeah. That's based on you know, your personal preferences. And so that really struck me how that, that crept into a lot of, you know, all young people believe that, that there is some subjectivity to moral truth mm-hmm. as opposed to everything else that we see now. Yeah, I mean, and again, you know, we, I mean, we say there's no objective truth, but like I said, when we deal with money, we deal with, right, we, we deal with the laws of, you know, nature, gravity. We, we know that those things are objective. But once we slip into morality, oh, wait a minute. Oh, hang on. That's preference. That's preference. And that's absolutely right. I mean, it's just the morality becomes that issue because that's where the degradation of society happens. It doesn't happen, do I do my math well, <laughs> Right? It doesn't happen if I follow the laws of physics or gravity. It happens in that moral structure of obedience to God's word or disobedience to God's word. So, yeah, good word. Anything else? Yeah. Um, how does it fit in that, um, 
launching medical experiments that they did. Uh -huh. they, they treated the Jews and they did, they did freezing experiments on them, they did cutting experiments, they did transplants work on them. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the ethics on that is moral relativism as far as what Nazi did. Again, everything they did was legal within their country. And again, when you consider something, and I'll just say something just very generally, when you consider a human to be inhuman, you can do whatever you want. It, it would be like experimenting on a lab rat. I mean, so there, there is no boundaries there. It, it goes back to what has been established as that moral, moral relativism. And they've established in Germany, all of this is legal. You know, the, the, the cry out of that is, where was the church? And again, you've got some churches went along with it, right? If they were promised, right, special favor or allowed to existence. But then you've got the whole thing with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and them that were working against it. And so, you know, it, it's easy to say, where was the church? Because on one hand, where was the church? But the other hand, it was working against it when you find with, with Bonhoeffer and those. Um, and so those issues come up. Yeah, Doug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And, you know, and, and the thing is, and I guess this comes back to what, Kevin, you were saying about Maslow's higher needs, right? And, and, you know, we talk about expressive individualism, right? These are terms that are being kicked around today. It's really not a new idea, right? Maslow was talking about it what, back in the early 40s or whenever he was doing that. But, you know, we go back and we think, oh, well, this is just so new. It's not new. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. You know, it's... It goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Literally, we see this expressive individualism, the autonomous self, whatever you want to call it. We see that in Adam and Eve before they fell. You have that very existence. And you know what? It was there. It was in the church in Nazi Germany. We can point it to parts of the church here. Look, let's just, let's just make it personal. It exists within us. I mean, it's easy, again, to sit there and to blame the church, right? Just to blame the church. We're no better than what we find within critical theory that they blame the system. You pick your institution that you want to blame, we'll blame that. Well, then that means I'm not accountable or responsible. And we're back to if there's not personal responsibility, you're going to see this precipitous fall of morality. And so, again, it always, again, it starts, you know, how am I doing? 
Am I holding God's word in high esteem? Am I walking in obedience to God's word? Am I desiring that for my family, my friends, my coworkers? Um, it, you know, it's got to start there. You know, it's that idea of virtue. It's a lifelong pursuit. We're just not going to wake up one day and be virtuous people. I wish, I wish. I mean, if there's a pill, I'd take it. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, there you go, getting scriptural on me there again, just dropping that. Um, I don't remember what we're doing next week, but show up and we'll, we'll, figure, we'll figure it all out. I didn't look that far ahead. I apologize. Let me close in prayer. And we'll call it a night. Blessed Father, Lord, we thank you that uh, we only need to look to you to find out what is good and true and just and loving and compassionate and merciful. And Lord, we know that through your word and we know that clearly and specifically through your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, your spirit dwells within us. So this is, this is available to each one of us. And I pray for, pray for myself. I pray for each person in this room that, Lord, we would... We would seek your righteousness. We would seek your holiness in our lives. Lord, we would cast off the flesh of its, of its corruptness. We would nail it to the cross. And Lord, we would consider others more important than ourselves. And I pray that for each person here, Lord, raise us up to be a light into a dark and dying world. Uh, Lord, let us live in such a way that People would be drawn to you and let us speak the gospel in such a way that people would say yes to you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We bless you and praise you. And it's in your glorious name we ask these things. Amen.